Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 585 of the podcast and it is Tuesday the 9th of November 2021 as I record this. In today's in-betweenisode, I'm talking to Dave Chesson from Kindlepreneur about rebooting our keywords for Amazon and tips around how to come up with ideas for fiction and non-fiction books. And we also talk about his new writing and formatting tool, Atticus, which is available now. So Dave is one of the people I trust to deliver great tools for authors, and I personally use Publisher Rocket for my keywords and category research. You can support the show by checking it out through my link, thecreativepen.com forward slash rocket. So let's get into the interview. Dave Chesson is the founder of Kindlepreneur and producer of Publisher Rocket and Atticus, amongst many other useful resources for authors. He's also an author and a military veteran who used to be a nuclear engineer. So welcome back to the show, Dave. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Joanna. Oh, I'm excited to talk to you today. Now, we did uh, a couple of years, well, more than a couple of years ago, 2018, you were on the show. We talked about your backstory, so we're not going to go into that <laughs> today. But I wanted to start, before we get into some details, have a bit of a wide overview of the industry, because you and I have been doing this for probably over a decade. What are some of the significant changes that you've seen? Because you've paid a lot of attention, obviously, to the whole industry, but Amazon in particular. Like, What's changed and why is it still interesting? Well, there's two big things to it. We'll start with Amazon and then we're going to talk about the industry. So you remember back when even just the reporting from Amazon was just heinous. Like there was Mm. not even a chart. You had to like sort of look at instantaneous data. Like the fact that Amazon really stunk at just telling me how much money I was making was just indicative of their lack of attention. And they were very slow to roll out or do anything whatsoever. I would say if we're taking a really, you know, 20,000 foot view here, I think that over the past couple of years, Amazon has been ramping up a lot and changing and adding and doing a lot of things. This to me gives me a lot of hope in the future because if Amazon is really focused on this, hopefully great things are going to come of it. You know, mm. the fact that they've introduced A plus content, whether whether I like it or not, Kindle Vela, whether I like it or not, at least they're doing something there. They're always adding to the Amazon ad system. Clearly, they like that. And they did an overhaul on their analytics and their reporting. Plus, they're constantly doing things with their categories. And one of the things as the creator publisher rocket, much to my chagrin, um, <laughs> they're constantly testing things all over the site. One day you'll wake up and maybe a group of people in America or in one particular state might see that there's this new button or color or they've gotten rid of the also buy and they've moved it down. And then they, they're they constantly seeing what is helping them to sell more. And so I like the fact that they're giving that attention. I love Barnes and Noble. Don't get me wrong. And the people who run BNN Press are phenomenally super smart, great people. I mean, really cool. Mm. Uh, and they've got amazing ideas. 
But I get the feeling that Barnes and Noble looks at BNN Press and does not give them the attention, does not give them the authority to make a lot of changes uh, or the changes that they really want to do. So from an organization side, at least Amazon is doing things that are affecting indie authors, whether they're awesome yet, at least we're seeing something. So that is one thing I'm very hopeful about Mm. for the future. The second thing, though, is to turn to the industry. Uh, You know, back when we started as indie authors, the publishing companies, the publishing agencies, the publishing side looked down at us kind of like, you know, like, and this is not I'm just oh, the stigma, here. the stigma, the stigma of self-publishing. Exactly. <laughs> like, oh, couldn't hack it in our industry. Yeah, you know, they're just letting really bad books onto the market. And it's just crowding. But here's the thing, though. And again, I'm just generalizing. They're starting to look at indie authors and saying, huh, you know what? Here's an author that clearly wrote a good enough book because there's a lot of reviews. Clearly, they know some marketing. Clearly, they have an email list and they have a presence why take a chance on somebody who's never done any of that when we can sign this person over here who has a proven track record or seems to be trending in the right area? And so now uh, I like to call it like they're looking at us like free agents, you know, like in sports where, hey, this player's done this. Let's go ahead and sign them. And so we've gone from a stigma of being the, meh, you know, uh, to being the, huh, <laughs> Yes, well, it's the irony, of course, of being a successful independent author that when you know before you were successful, you really, really wanted to be picked by the industry, and you were like, "Please pick me." And then by the time you become really super successful, uh, and they come to you, you're like, "Why would I do that?" So exactly, I, exactly. So obviously, a lot of people take different deals, and we're encouraging people to license rights as they see fit. But it is definitely a change. You're and you're right. I mean, especially when I started out in 2008, they called it the tsunami of crap (laughs) 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 and it's like yeah okay fair enough but but, yeah things have definitely changed well you've mentioned a couple of things there around a plus content and changes with ads and I wondered I mean again I've been doing book marketing stuff since 2008 and I almost feel like I I kind of take for granted the things that work when things might change and I might not be paying enough attention. So tell us, particularly for authors who might not have touched their backlist for a while, so those of us with bigger chunks of backlist, what should we revisit or what should we pay more attention to? Well, boy, there's a lot of different answers to that question. So I'm going to choose one and I'm going to stick to it so it can be really uh, detailed. I like the idea that a lot of authors will write a really good book and they'll do their launch and they'll do their marketing and they see some sales. And then all of a sudden at a certain time period, the sales just kind of drop off. This happens a majority of the time. Okay. And the book just never recovers. Now the author has gone on to write more books, which is a very good strategy. And I highly recommend that. And they've, they built up their backlist, but in time, I would almost, I'd recommend to a lot of authors going back to that first book and looking at, Hey, what did I do wrong? Because Let's face it, the first book you ever published probably wasn't amazing. Like maybe it sold well, but maybe you made a lot of mistakes. Like over time, you've learned, you've gained experience, you have intuition on what's right and what's wrong. You can go back to that old book and you can look and be like, oh, you know what? That cover, like it kind of looked neat, but it's a bit confusing when I shrink it down to the size that the customer see. Huh. You know, my subtitle really doesn't describe who this is for or my book description 
reads like a book report. And if you can go back and start to see the things that, you know, the mistakes or so and revisit it and shock it a little bit, and then use some of these new advert or these new marketing tools like Amazon ads. And I say new because maybe that book came out when they weren't there. (laughs) Or you have a email list that you've never used because you didn't have it when you launched that book. When you start to incorporate those things, you can really drive it back up. Another thing that I really like too is, you know, you talked about it, your your backlist. If you have an also buy page, right? Updating that on the old books to the new books can also help to increase the sales across. So while we move forward on our books, sometimes it's really good to go back to some of the books you had and use that new knowledge and experience to help kind of bring them about and use some of the new tools that Amazon has provided and increase your overall revenue. Mm, it's so funny. I mean, even, and I know some people listening were like, yeah, yeah, heard it before. And it's like, yes, you have heard it before and it's important. <laughs> but oh, it, even yeah. um, emailing your list, the first in series, I actually did that quite recently, emailed my JF Pen list about Stone of Fire, which was my first novel. And I, which I did re-edit. It's had, a, it's on its third or fourth cover by now. You know, I did all those things. I emailed my list thinking, oh, well, they will have all read it already, but I'll give it a go. And I got a whole load of downloads because, of course, over the decade or so since I've run that email list, people come in on different books and they might not know that that first book in series is actually perma-free, for example, as an ebook. So even doing that kind of thing, putting even putting that into an email um, autoresponder series so that you don't forget to do it. <laughs> It's quite right. a good good idea. But I did want to ask you about newer stuff, the A-plus content, right? Can mm-hmm. If people don't know, can you just explain what that is? And is it worth doing? Because I've, I've had a go and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can be bothered. Is it worth it? Yeah, so A-plus content is sort of a, shall we say, a visual editorial review section. And for those who don't know, the editorial review section is a section where you can honestly put just about anything in there. At one point, Amazon on their FAQ actually said, this was like the most unprofessional thing, but they said, even your mom can leave something in the editorial review. I was shocked. And they finally changed it, of course. But so, I mean, anything, I mean, anything. So like, if you have a friend, if you have a colleague, a person you work with, another author, or you got a blog to review, you can leave that there. And there's a really good structure to it. But then Amazon said, you know, visuals and images really speak a lot. So let's give them an opportunity to create a section where they can put basically images. And so right now, I would say that I don't have enough data. We're trying to collect uh, data on whether or not it is beneficial. So I can't speak on that. But what I can say, though, is whether or not it helps, I think it really depends. Uh, And I know that sounds like a cop out, but here's the thing. If I'm looking at your book, so I'm a shopper and I have searched and I see this really cool book cover and then I see your title and subtitle and I read your book description, I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm still scrolling down on your, your Amazon sales page, right? The way I look at it at that point, you're still kind of iffy. A lot of people are just using the same cover, you know, Uh, and I'm like, well, I already saw that. So that's not going to change things. Mm. But where it gets really bad, though, is some authors are just going in there and throwing something in. And now it looks unprofessional, right? I mean, maybe you paid some top dollar or something or, or you're a really good designer or something and you created a great book cover. But if you're not going to make that A plus content section look very professional, it may hurt. Mm. So I say to authors. I think it's, I think it can't hurt if you have a great graphic designer or if you can do it yourself, but to throw something together just because that's not a good idea. 
And so right now, that's the best advice I can give on it until we can report data and then be able to see. But also, too, if Amazon keeps it around, it's probably helping them sell books. If it's not helping them sell books, they'll get rid of it. So yeah. Amazon will also be a good test taster on that one. That is a good point. They will just get rid of it if it doesn't help. Yeah, I think what we're seeing so far is that the people who made the change and added it, they haven't seen such a giant sale that authors are just speaking volumes, right? Mm -hmm. Some of Mm -hmm. them are doing, they're like, well, maybe is kind of what I'm hearing. Um, Like, I think it might have. I I mean, you can't imagine. (laughs) But then we like to think that because we like the image. You know, it's like, oh, it's a good image. So it must be working. (laughs) Right. But it doesn't, we haven't seen it where somebody's done it and the sales have dropped dramatically. So I think that's why there's a lot of like hesitation about it because nothing's come. But I think, Amazon, on the other hand, knows they can see the minute difference. You know, it could be just a 0.1% increase in sales, but to Amazon, that's millions of dollars. To us, it's like one book sale, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so they're seeing the data. And like I said, I think they will be our telltale whether or not it's successful because they're not going to keep it if it's not helping them to make more money. And if it's helping, if it's making them lose money, be gone with you, you know, it's gone. Yeah. Um, yeah so we'll see. Yeah. So, well, let's go to things that definitely do make a difference if you get them right, which is keywords and categories. And one of your excellent tools is Publisher Rocket, which I use and recommend to everyone (laughs) I can talk to. It's super useful. In fact, I recently I'm writing in a new niche, a travel niche around solo walking. And I've been using it as a I've never I don't think I've really done this before. I normally write a book and come up with a title and then I go look for keywords to add to the keyword field, right? But this time I'm like, I'm trying to be a bit better because it's nonfiction, which is easier. I'm like, okay, solo walking is a thing. Solo walking for women is a thing. How can I research this? So I am looking a bit more at categories and keywords. So you had a really good blog post about this recently, particularly for nonfiction. So what are some of your main tips for keywords as it relates to nonfiction in particular? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a great way to put it because keywords are completely different between fiction and nonfiction because keywords aren't some magical word that we authors come up with. Keywords are actually, by definition, the words that customers on Amazon type into Amazon when searching for a book. And so what we need to do as authors try is try to figure out what kind of words come to mind when describing what it is they want. And if it is fiction, they're describing the kind of story they want. You know, they're trying to define elements by talking about the time period, the setting, the tone of the genre, the level or the intensity, and any descriptor on characters or characterizations. These things comprise of the shall we say, phrase they type into Amazon. But when it comes to nonfiction, on the other hand, really it's being broken down into what I call four general areas, okay? And that's pain points, desired results, emotional amplifiers, and demographics, all right? Now, when a shopper comes to Amazon, they're not, maybe they use all four, or maybe they use one or two, maybe three. But the key is, is that they're sitting down and they're thinking, all right, I'm here for a nonfiction book. And so- what they type in depends on what really pops in their mind. And so this, for example, let's start with pain points, okay? Pain points is when they think of the pain or the reason of why they want to learn whatever it is they're going for, okay? So the pain point might be- um, Weight loss, that's always a good one. (laughs) Right, like the pain would be 
overweight, can't fit into my dress. Like that's the pain, right? That's the initial statement. Okay. And so they start coming up with why they're there. Desired results, on the other hand, is the opposite end of that spectrum, which is what it is they want to accomplish. So losing weight would be the desired result or, you know, beach body is the desired result. And so again, those are two sides of the coin. You may say, well, it's kind of the same thing, but it's like, "Mm, but they're not. Hmm. And so these are really good things for us authors to think about. Next is emotional amplifiers. Okay. Now these are like words that add to uh, the pain point or the desired results. So this could be, you know, lose weight fast. Okay. Or it could also be something like speed reading in one hour, uh, you know, lose weight like crazy or 13 ways to lose weight fast, you know, 13 being something that says like this motion, like it's easy, just 13 Mm. steps. And so when you add those things in, it really sort of, you know, like, do I want to lose weight? Yeah. I mean, I want to lose weight. It takes two years. Like, no, I want to lose now. Like I want to fit in that dress now. And so if we add these kind of works together, notice that we're starting to build a better understanding of who it is, but This brings me to my last one, which is demographics. And I think this is the real secret sauce, especially for starting authors, is that it's not just that I want to, that, you know, that I'm overweight. It's not just that I want to lose weight and, you know, feel great. It's not just that I want to do it fast, but I want to make sure that this book is for me. Okay. And so if I understand who it is I'm writing for, I think this is a really good one to look at, not only like after you publish, but before you start writing to understand that there's an opportunity. And so, for example, it could be how to motivate my teenage kid or, and you see what I'm saying? Like just that change. A great example of this was years ago when writing books on, oh boy, what was that with the elephant? Uh, Evernote. There it is. <laughs> yeah, Evernote, yeah, Evernote, right? yeah. There we go. Man, years ago, that was like a really hot one. There were a lot of people searching on Amazon, on books on Evernote, and there was kind of a craze. There was a lot of people writing books on Evernote. Now, if you were thinking, all right, I'm going to jump in on this opportunity. uh, Okay. Your option at that point is you could either A, try to write a book on Evernote that somehow beats out the 200 other books on Evernote. You know, B, you're an amazing marketer who can beat out the other 200. Or C, perhaps there is a demographic that exists that's searching for it. And sure enough, back then, there literally, there really were uh, people typing in an Amazon, Evernote for authors, Evernote for students, Evernote for project managers, and Evernote for lawyers. Now, there aren't, there are more people typing into Amazon, Evernote, or learn Evernote. But if there, if you are the only book on Amazon, that's Evernote for authors or Evernote for students. And I type in Evernote for students, guess which one's going to get bought? Because I clearly know that this book was written for me. And so your conversion rates are going to be extremely high. And so I think that when you as an author are sitting down to come up with your nonfiction keywords, I tell people break out a sheet of paper, okay? And start by creating four columns for those things we talked about. That's just pain points, desired results, emotional amplifiers, and demographics, and then start coming up with every way that you can think of to describe those things and what your book will be. This paper is super cool 
because for those who own Publisher Rocket, you can then go and put that information in there. You can even expand because Rocket will then tell you, hey, you wrote this, but here's a whole bunch of other things that are close to that, that Amazon, that people are typing in Amazon. You can see how many people are typing it into Amazon. You can see the competition, all that. But here's where it really becomes important. Okay. That sheet of paper is awesome for when it comes time to come up with your title, come up with your subtitle, and even better, for your book description, because these are all really cool terms and words and phrases that describe your book, but also people are typing into Amazon, especially if you're using Rocket. And as they say in sales copy, if you can use your own target market's words to describe what it is they're looking for, you're doing great. And so now as you start to list the benefits to reading this book, you can use these exact words they were describing when they were describing their desired results. Or you can hook them by using their pain points. Like, do you feel sharp lower pain or pain in your lower back? Does it feel like something's biting you every time you get up out of bed? Like, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I typed into Amazon. Oh boy, this must be the book for me. You know, and so all of these things can really come together to help you to not only get the right people to see your book but to also make sure that they know that this really is the right book for them. And uh, I I wanted to emphasize this because I, I've had a few conversations lately and people don't realize that these keywords are not just for the keyword field, they're also for potentially title and subtitle for nonfiction books. And of course, the examples we've given are sort of self-helpy, but it's the same, like I'm writing essentially a travel memoir slash travelogue. And I'm thinking about the series name. I'm thinking about the title, the subtitle, and it's probably more about the emotional side and the demographics when it comes to a travel memoir. Mm, um, yes. It's not going to be like 10 tips to walk alone. It's not that kind of book. It's more like, you know, but it, it's to appeal to people who want to do solo walking. So I'm going to put that in there somewhere. It's just a question of where. So we're not talking about writing to market here, although you can use this research to write to market, but I'm more talking about actually thinking about it before I've done the title and the book cover and, and all of that. And it's still important. I feel like this is one of those fundamental marketing things that if you can do, it just takes the pressure off, right? And then you can do ads later, you can do whatever later. But if you get these Absolutely. fundamentals right, it makes so much difference. Right. And like I said, it's at that point, the book that you're writing this exercise helps you not only for choosing those keywords, but also to help you to build a better book description, to choose the right way to express the subtitle. And I also think too, that what's really uh, excellent about it. And by the way, let me point this. I've always thought that memoirs are the combination between nonfiction and fiction, mm, you know, yeah. and I think that from a marketing standpoint, I like to approach it that way. So uh, if you're doing the memoir, I highly recommend you use the fiction and nonfiction methods together <laughs> because the truth have a really is, long thing going on. <laughs> right. Well, you know, when people are looking at memoirs, they want to be entertained. Whereas like a nonfiction book, just nonfiction is, I just want to learn, you know, like, all right, just tell me how to walk or how to do this particular journey. Mm. Um, well, um, recap the fiction for us then, since since you mentioned it again. Like, what are those things that you mentioned for fiction, and any tips for that? Yeah. So, all right. So we talked about the important components to nonfiction, right? Describing it with pain points, results, amplifiers, and demographics. 
fiction, we're describing the entertaining component to it. Okay. Like what's the story. All right. And so I say the same thing with the sheet, right? Break out the sheet, make the four columns. And some of this won't apply for your particular memoir, but the first one would be time period and settings. Now there are memoirs out there that, you know, it's like the middle child in the 1950s, right? Well, what well I'm definitely going to have setting? setting. Yeah. Setting right. as in physical setting. setting. Mm. Exactly. Um, you know, backpacking through the Alps is different than through Europe, right? Mm. And so making sure that we have that component in there is going to be key. The next column is character types and roles. Okay. Uh, this might not be something, but you could find, for example, roles like who is the person that is going to set forth on this journey, right? Who are you? And so looking at how you describe that is going to be important. Uh, plot themes and special events for fiction. Usually this is like, what's the catalyst? What started the story or what sparked this to happen? Was it a plane crash? Was it dragons from post-apocalyptic error? Or was it the sense of wanting to be free from society and be one with nature? Like what started that desire to start this journey? Okay. And finally, and this is one of my favorites, especially for fiction, is style and tone of genre. Now, this might be a little bit hard for memoir. And again, that's kind of the thing about memoir. It's like the combination of two. But for most fiction, this is really going to come down to like, you know, when I ask an author, so what do you write in? They're like, romance. I'm like, okay, what kind of romance? Oh, well, it's, um, uh, you know, it's, and sometimes they fumble over it. But here's the thing, though. There's a huge difference in romance from wholesome, clean, maybe even Christian romance or something like that on the left. And then it goes all the way to steamy, hot, you know, other phrases, erotica (laughs) and all these other things. Right. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, the person who's reading the Christian wholesome one wants to make sure they're not going to get the steamy, hot one and vice versa. And so we need to make sure that we have words Okay, whether it's in our description, in our subtitle title, or in our key selected keywords that help to make sure that when I type in steamy hot romance, like clearly I'm going to get the steamy hot romance and I'm not going to get the conservative, the, the clean best, Christian one. The clean Christian, <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's a difference there. And so now I think that's a very, very important part uh, for authors is to make sure they really understand it. Is this a bloody thriller or is this a mystery thriller? And you could probably even go crazier in these terms. You know, Mm. is this intergalactic military sci-fi or is this funny space opera? And again, all these words really describe the tone or style of the genre. And so I think it's really important for authors to take into consideration. Mm. Yeah, because readers know what they want and they use all of these different things to find what they want and it's so funny because we always say oh of course it's really hard discoverability is really hard it's hard for us but it's not hard as a reader like it's hard as an author but it's not hard as a reader like I read a lot of books and I do not have trouble finding books I have trouble finding time to read all the books (laughs) I want to to read so readers will find what they what they're looking for for example I really like ancient artifacts and relic thrillers and and religious thrillers and and that kind of thing so I'm down in in that niche as a reader and as a writer but I did want to ask you so back on uh, the keyword field itself and the category field within our uh, when we publish a book we put in those things obviously we put description as well on each format I've got my ebook I've got my paperback I've got my hard 
hardback. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we can also have a large print. And, and then I've got an audiobook. So I've got five formats almost per book now. When we use keywords, should we be trying to use different keywords on each format in order to maximize discoverability? I mean, I do use large print has specific keywords around large print. And occasionally mm-hmm. there's things with hardback in. But should we be just trying to broaden everything or should we try and double down on the same keywords per format? So one of the things I like to do is I like to tell people when it's either my opinion or if I have data to back it up. And for the answer for this, I do not have data to back up my opinion. Um, One of the cool things about running Rocket is we collect a lot of data and we're able to Mm. test things. And we even did an experiment like two years ago where we created a special crawler to see how the keywords you chose and where you put them in your boxes, how does that affect your book's discoverability on Amazon? The problem is, is that I didn't think, and by the way, it was a super expensive experiment, um, but I didn't think to test how it would be in the different versions of a book. So if I did this in paperback, but then I did this in an ebook, and then I, so I don't have data to support what I'm about to say, but what I think is, I think you're dead on in saying that if it's a hardcover or it's large font uh, or large print, that there are certain phrases you may want to put in there to make sure that that shows up. Uh, Amazon knows that if I'm if I really need large print, I'm probably going to put something like that in my search term and they need to know uh, that this really is or it's intended to be. Okay. That being said, though, is that I haven't seen anything that would allude to the idea or the recommendation that an author should do a completely different set of keywords for every version of their book. I just, I haven't seen anything that would make me say that that is something somebody should absolutely do. Mm. What I personally do Mm. is I generally keep my keywords the same, but I may change one or two of the boxes. Okay, so there's the seven Kindle keyword boxes that you fill in, and there's 50 characters in each box. And one thing that we did prove in that experiment was that Amazon uses, uh, so say you put like five words in that box, Amazon will use all the different variations of those words. Okay, so if you put in like red dragon army battle, then dragon army, red army, like all of those phrases you will be indexed for. Mm. Okay, so long as Amazon recognizes that as a searchable term. But that being said, though, we also learned that if you put in a specific phrase, you'll rank better for that phrase than if you put five different words in there. Okay. So say, for example, Dragon Army, you want to rank better for Dragon Army, then just put Dragon Army in there. And we saw that books naturally had a better ranking for that keyword. Uh, So my ultimate recommendation to people for that was use Publisher Rocket, find the four phrases that absolutely want that does describe your book and gets searches on Amazon. Okay. You can get that in the software. All right. And then just put those exact phrases into four of your seven boxes. Then for the last three, go in there and take a a combination of all the other words you kind of liked and put them in there. We believe that this will help you to rank better for the ones you really care about and help to spread you out in even more terms. And it gives Amazon sort of a better understanding of what your book is about. And they can, we've also found too, that they'll, they figure out that, oh, this book does well for this word. So let's put them in this phrase because in the past, this has done well too. They're connected. And so they spread you out. We've, we believe that that is the best strategy for the seven boxes. So with that in mind, what I do is I generally keep like 
five, six of the boxes the same for each one of the versions. And I may change one or two of the boxes between mm. the different formats and go from there. I The reason why I don't believe that that strategy is major is because I also have seen from our data that Amazon will generally choose to show the version of your book they think will sell the best for the search phrase. So if, say, for example, they have the historical data that people will find your book, but they constantly choose the audiobook or they constantly choose the ebook version, then Amazon knows, hey, if this book is to show up for this search term, let's show the one that converts the best automatically. And so they choose that. All right. So when we authors choose our categories, that really helps Amazon to understand what all the other words mean. Okay. For example, imagine the person in a bookstore who gets a book on, you know, Wiccan. Well, like, right. Maybe they think that that, oh, that must be religion. Or they may be like, oh, that's one of those fantasy ones, right? Those are two different books. And if they don't have something to base their decision on, they may put it in a completely wrong place. Well, Amazon's kind of the same way, right? They look at the categories you select. They look at the words you're giving them. They look at kind of certain components. And by the way, we did test this, which is where if they're like, oh, this is a fantasy book, then they're looking for certain words in your book description to help say, okay, yep, this is definitely a fantasy book. Okay, yep, this is definitely this kind of fantasy. Oh, we should show it to the lit RPG people because, yep, got it. Like, see what I'm saying? They're yeah. they're looking at all those things, but they really want the input to solidify it the most. Yeah, interesting times. And it's so funny because I feel like we've been talking about keywords and categories forever, but we have to because it's important to help people find our books. But I also think it's interesting for our ads. It's interesting for what we're writing next. So you have just launched Atticus, which is a web-based app for book formatting, which I've been playing with. And everyone is very excited about because, of course, many of us use Vellum, which is not available for PC. And you've got a web-based app, so uh, it's easy to use it's for everyone so tell us um what need did you see in the community that Atticus is intending to meet because I know software is hard yeah so you hit it right right on the head there the first thing was that there are a lot of authors that use pc computers and the bummer part was was that like you said vellum only worked for mac and so a good percentage of authors either had to use a Mac and cloud thing to get it to sort of work, or they had to buy a Mac computer, which crazy, but like a lot of people had to, because to create beautiful professional formatted books, you know, you needed something like that to do it. But the truth be told is, and, and so let me just, let me start by saying that we launched Atticus.io uh, at the day of this recording, but the, what it really is, is it's Vellum, but works for Mac and PC and Chromebook and Linux. And it's currently $100 cheaper. And it's got a lot of features and more customization. But on top of that, it's also got a writing space where you can write in it. It's clean. We were adding so many different features to the writing component. And so that's, I just want to make that very clear. That is where we are at, at the moment of this recording. But what I want to do with the program and the reason why we designed it the way it was, and we put us so much under the hood in preparation for this, I describe what it will be as with the statement of if Scrivener, Google Docs, and Vellum got together and had a baby, its name would be Atticus. Okay. Because as an author, 
you know, we use maybe Scrivener for writing our book or we use Word. The point though is we do our writing in this one software. And then when time comes and we're going to work with our editor, we now either a email back and forth, back and forth, back and forth with our Word doc, or maybe we got one of those editors that are okay with uh, Google Docs where we can upload it in Google Docs and we can work in real time and we can comment and communicate. But the moment that you're done with that, then you have to export it, okay, and upload it into another software in order to format it. And one of the problems I've had is that by the time I've done this entire process, I end up with seven different Word files on my computer <laughs> that say final, 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 all caps, this is the final, final edited, final ready for formatting. Like, And what's, what's crazy is I never delete them. I don't know why, but it's like this hesitation that I delete the wrong one. Now, generally, as I'm working on it, I know which one it's supposed to be. And finally, when I format it, and I upload it to Amazon, I'm like, great. And I just grab them all and I save them in a file. But like we were talking about, sometimes you go back to your previous books and you need to update it. Or you're like, oh man, I need to create a large print version because that is a great opportunity. Or I need to do this. And then I'm like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, which final one? And so this has kind of been a major pain point that I've had uh, for years. And so my absolute goal with Atticus is to create shall we say the one ring to bind to, you know, to bind them all. And in this case, an author can plot, write, collaborate, and format. And they can keep every one of their books right there. They can make simple changes. They can update back matter with the click of a button. They don't have to go find files and update files and reload files or heaven forbid, have to pay for a formatter again because they wanted to change something. It's all nice and organized. And the collaboration thing is the thing I'm most excited about. Um, hmm, that's what that- I just wrote down. I was like, collaboration? Tell me about that. So you mean yes. you can co-write with other people? Oh, co-write, uh, edit, work with ARC readers. See, here's what this is going to look like. We already have the UI design for it. We've already done a lot of the work under the hood. Okay. This is coming out like rapid. We are focusing on improving the writing section first. So we're now in what I call phase two, which is adding, actually today, I think we added uh, book goals and writing habit trackers. Uh, We're going to be adding plotting capability, also automatic integration and working with plotter and some of those other programs as well, character cards, notes. So we're focusing on that. And then we move into collaboration. This is what collaboration will look like. When you're ready, say you've written your book in your writing pane, you're good to go there. All right, great. And it's time to work with your editor. You can click a button and it will, uh, you can put in their email address and it will send them a link. The editor doesn't have to own Atticus. They can click the link and it will open up in a browser and we're designing it to look just like Word document, like to act just like Word document where track changes, all the buttons are where they would expect. Cause let's, let me tell you, talking to a whole bunch of editors, they're like, <laughs> I like Word. I'm like, yeah, we'll give you Word, I promise. You know, And so they can literally start making changes right there. Now, what's awesome for the author is you can see it real time. Okay. And you can accept the changes or reject the changes. You can communicate with them and you can go back and forth and the editors can mark when a chapter is ready for you. And so now you can work in real time together. You're not having to email back and forth. You don't have seven different copies that say final, final on it. And when the moment comes and you're done, okay, you've worked with the editor, everything's good to go. You can secure their access. They lose access to the book. So there's no copies floating around. 
Same thing goes with collaborating with another writer. Now, in this case, both writers do have to own the program just because of how it coordinates and communicates. But when you go to collaborate with another author, you can click a button, send them the link. It attaches the uh, project together. So you both have it in your dashboard on Atticus. And you can even assign permissions and capabilities. And because let's face it, especially when two authors are collaborating, uh, I do highly recommend this, but you need to make one of them the person who makes the call, the final call, uh, and establish that from the beginning. But maybe there's certain permissions. Maybe this is a new writer that you're working with as a, you know, as a lead writer, and you don't want them to be able to do certain things. And so you can change those permissions and send it over. And that way you guys can work together in that respect. The other thing is we talked about ARC readers. And so when the time comes and you want to send a copy of your book to advanced review copy readers or beta readers, depending on what point you send it to them, you can send them that link. They do not need to own Atticus. They can read your book. They can leave comments. You can even choose if other ARC readers see the comments that others leave, or if you want it just to be, you know, only you see their comment, uh, which I I kind of personally prefer because sometimes when one ARC reader comments something, then like all of a sudden it triggers the rest of them to think that that's a big issue. And then you're oh, like, yeah. oh, that must be yeah. a huge issue. And it's like, <laughs> no, it's not really. It's just they all saw it. And they're like, oh yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. And so I'll write it in there too. And so you can add that permission. But here's the thing that I love most. We're making it so that you can't, you know, you they cannot copy and paste. They cannot download. There is no copy of your book just floating around. And then finally, like there's a pane where you can see everybody who has access to your book through Atticus, uh, their name and what permission they have. And you can click an X and you can just take away their permission just like that. So now you have full control of knowing who has what access to your book. And when you're ready, they don't have it anymore. And I, this to me is really important because we've all heard of the art copy that got out there to pirates. We've all heard of, of kind of some of the horror stories that are out there. And so we wanted to create something that gave authors the power to collaborate in any way that they need to, while also controlling who has access to their book at all times. No, I think that's really cool. I think the collaboration stuff is is something that many authors are doing and uh, it can be really frustrating. Like I, I recently did The Relaxed Author with Mark Leslie Lefebvre and discovered that he likes MS Word and I was working in Scrivener and <laughs> it was a bit of a mess at times, to be honest. Uh, but we should also say that you don't have to collaborate. You can just keep it all in yourself you can just keep it simple and do the writing do the formatting and then export right you can just keep it really locked down if that's what you want exactly and the, all the file management is right there whether you like say for example you've formatted the book excellent now oh man i need to change the the back matter because i want to add i want to change up my biography or i want to change up my uh also by page to list my latest book well, you just go right in there. You type it in, you click, click export, done. Like, And what's yeah. really cool is we actually have a new feature that came out. Well, actually, no, it's coming out tomorrow. Uh, it'll be out when this publishes for sure. And what it is, is that you can create a template page. So say, for example, you design your also by page and you can apply it to all the books you have in your Atticus. And then the moment that you go to update one, okay, so say you go into book seven and you update that particular page, Atticus will say, hey, do you want us to apply this to all these books? And it will list all the books that you use that page on. And you click a button and bam, oh, all the books oh, you have, oh, have it. Oh, that's killer. That right? really is killer. Yeah. I am so jazzed about that because 
that's like my least favorite thing to do is, oh, crikey. All right, let me go into this one. Let me copy and paste and put it over there in this. Nope. One click and it's applied to all your books. And again, we have that list of the books that would be affected. So that way you can verify you didn't make a mistake. So what if, say there was someone who had quite a lot of books already and they wanted to sort of back engineer this, uh, could they load... I guess the, the trouble is that the formatted, finished formatted books are in PDF rather than any other format. So I guess one would have to re-upload the Word docs again if we wanted to back engineer that process. Could can you, you load could, PDFs or you could load EPUB and Mobi? That's one of the things that by the time this comes out, we will have that where any of the EPUB version or Mobi version of your book, you can just throw it right into Atticus. Atticus will, uh, I mean, there's some programming language that may cause it to be wonky. And by wonky, it might, you might have to do about five minutes of just rearranging some things and be like, oh no, that was a chapter, you know, okay, that, that image needs to be changed out. But we wanted to make sure that Atticus would accept EPUB and Mobi uploads, not just Word document, because mm-hmm. for those who've already published a book, like say, for example, you paid for a formatter, Okay, to form. Yeah, you want to keep that. Yeah. Right. Mm. Well, just throw the EPUB or the Mobi file into Atticus. It will, there it is. And you can make subtle changes. And now you can quickly build up your, shall we say, Rolodex of all the books you've previously published. That was a very important thing for us because a lot of users have already done books and they're going to want to have them in their database, in their dashboard. Now, one of the other things that's really important to note about Atticus is, like you said, it is an online. Uh, program, right? It is a browser base, but we used a special programming thing called a PWA, and that's a progressive web app. Uh, what I think of progressive web apps is kind of the best of both worlds between a downloadable software and an online software. The reason for this is that with a progressive web app, you can access your books on any computer. Okay. You, you know, open up Chrome, go to Atticus and bam, log in. And there you have it. It's there. So if you want to use it on your laptop, your desktop, that's cool. But what's awesome about progressive web apps is that if you have Chrome open, you can click a button and it will download a copy of it onto your computer. You'll have an icon there. You can open it up and you can, again, work inside of your Atticus. Uh, But where this becomes pretty cool is that we have the ability that you can save your... uh, we call it like a snapshot. You can have a backup of your entire thing saved on your computer. Okay. Mm. So you can save it on your computer while the cloud also protects you. And so for authors, this is the best of both worlds because heaven forbid something happens to your computer, right? And you didn't have all your files on all these things, like your toast. Whereas we back it up on our system, you can back it up on your computer. And this gives you a lot more security in that respect. So It's the best of both worlds in that respect. The other thing too, is that authors, the only time you need internet connection for Atticus is when you upload a new document. So like a Word doc or a Mobi or EPUB, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, Or when you go to hit export, okay? Now, Mm. and also to log in initially. So when you download or whatever, uh, you just need to log in at that point and then you're good to go. That's it. And I guess when we have the collaboration component, you probably want to be (laughs) connected to the internet to collaborate with people. But that being said, though, um, any other function to the program, you can use offline. So if you are going off to the woods, no problem. Just make sure you've logged into Atticus, go off to the woods, do your writing. And the moment that, and you can, again, save it onto your computer as you're doing it there as well. But the moment that you have the internet connect, it'll kick in. 
Uh, one of the things that we're doing for collaboration with authors is that if you're collaborating with another author, uh, the way we're going to set it up is that you can lock a chapter so that the other author can't touch anything in there while you're, say, on a flight and doing your work. This is our way to make sure that there's no confliction issues where it's like, okay, who wrote it first or who touched what? And so yeah, that's what, yeah. that's the way we're getting around that. So yeah, sounds like you've got a lot uh, coming out with Atticus. It's, it sounds like you're, you're going to cover everything, which is very very cool. Just you you haven't actually mentioned what it outputs. So what file formats and is it compatible with KDP and Ingram for print, for example? Oh yeah, uh, we are. So we export uh, PDF. We export EPUB. And probably by the time this comes out, we export in Mobi as well. Even though Amazon doesn't accept Mobi, we found that for people who want to send a copy to another author or as a reader magnet or as an ARC that they actually want to send, it's best to send a Mobi because it's much easier to upload on your Kindle. So we're going to have that as an export as well. When it comes to formatting, uh, when you are in a book and you click trim sizes and everything. We not only include all of the trim sizes for Ingram Sparks and, and KDP, we actually help to list which ones they accept, which ones are recommended. And we have an extensive list there as well as ones that are outside of those markets as well. That's really good. And I had a look. I was pleased to see that because what's really annoying, it's just happened to me with the new hardback version. I've been doing hardbacks with Ingram Spark for years now, and I've used the 5x8, which is what I use for my paperbacks. And KDP Print doesn't accept 5x8 for hardback. <laughs> so right. now I'm like, oh, we have to redo the files. And now I'm moving all my hardback to 5.5 by 8.5, whatever it is, uh, because of that. So knowing which ones they both accept, this is actually really important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we're going to be expanding on that as well. Another thing that's really important just to note is that our, we just released the large print options as well. But what's really interesting is that we go beyond ex what other formatting software does. And we actually do the requirements or, well, actually the recommendations, how they say, of the UK Associates for Acceptable Formats, as well as the American Foundation for the Blind. We don't just make the font bigger. We also use the, the font they recommend, the sans serif, 18-point font size, larger line spacing, spare, uh, the space paragraphs instead of indents, and ragged write text as well. So we've made it that our large print is in, in line as possible to help uh, those in need um, that, that are visually impaired. So, mm. oh, well, then I've got another one for you uh, workbooks. Yes, workbooks. So, we, we have a bunch of nonfiction capabilities like endnotes and footnotes, which, boy, man, that was, that was a <laughs> That's hardcore. Feat. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot more that I want to do for the nonfiction side as well. So, developing like the giant workbooks in space, I don't think that we're very capable of doing that. I still think that InDesign is probably the best for that because you want to create these laid out images and spacing. So, I, I will say, I don't think we're capable, but it's one of those things where I really want to tackle, especially as a nonfiction author myself. So. Yeah, I mean, and for my workbooks, I keep it pretty simple, which is there's a question at the top of the page and then there's lines. Oh, so, yeah, we, we can handle that. 
Yeah, I'm so, thinking I mean, more like the giant, you know, the the what do they call those? The no content books, like the the giant ones that people are making with like. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there's stuff. a lot of crackdown on those anyway. But no, I just That's for true. my your author business plan, for example, the workbook edition is all the questions from the book with uh, lines so that people can answer the questions in in the workbook. It's a companion work, but I do them at a six by nine size, so it's really just another book, but it's got some lines in. So it's not a no content. It's just, I guess, low content. Got it. Yeah, we can absolutely handle that. And ah, um, interesting. another thing that I'm really excited about that we just launched too, that makes us really unique is you can also design your own custom chapter design. And that's two page full bleed images, images that, that even can go over the word or behind the words and things like that. And so there's some really cool designs that we're making. But what's awesome is, is that once you've designed the look and feel, you can choose your fonts, the location, everything. You can save that template if you want and use it in your other books as well. So very cool. Stuff. I think, yeah, so a lot to play with. So tell people where they can find it and any more details that, that you want to share. Yeah. So you can find it at atticus.io and it's it's only $147 for unlimited books and ebooks. Is that a uh, per year or one off? No, or? just a one off. I am not a fan of subscriptions. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that, nope, that's very reasonable. <laughs> and that also includes all upgrades, new features, you name it, just like I've done with Rocket. So yes, I absolutely, I've been playing with it myself and I think it's, it's a lot of potential. And of course, as ever, you're very good at updating things when the services change their requirements. So uh, as we've seen, like all new things like the hardback, for example, that's, that's been quite a recent thing with KDP. So I'm very excited. I think this is fantastic. So where else can people find you and everything you do online? Yeah. If anybody has any questions or maybe we talked about something that they're kind of like, wait a second, huh? What was that? You can always find me at kindlepreneur.com. I've got a contact page there. So yeah, be more than happy to help. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Dave. That was great. Absolutely, Joanne. And again, thank you for having me. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dave. I always find his information useful. And if you'd like to support the show, you can check out Publisher Rocket through my link, thecreativepen.com forward slash rocket. So back to the usual show on Monday, when I'm talking to author and publisher Michael Baskar from Canelo, one of the fastest growing publishing companies in Europe. We have a wide ranging chat about the publishing industry and Michael's new book, Human Frontiers. It's a great conversation as we're both passionate about books and how technology can help us be better writers and publishers and, of course, make more money. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.